second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 40. As you're turning there, um, I want to remind you that we are in a series, especially for those of you who might be visiting with us for the first time. Uh, we're in a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ with the hope that as we walk through the Gospels, and we're going to go through the Gospels in a, in a chronological fashion and look at the life of Christ, that we will see Him more fully and therefore worship Him more rightly. That's our desire as we walk through these passages of Scripture. So today we're continuing with Jesus' childhood. And so as you just hold your finger there in the passage, or as you're turning to the passage, imagine with me, if you will, Dr. Luke, the uh, man who, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the words that we're going to be reading today. Dr. Luke is traveling with the Apostle Paul. They head back to Jerusalem, despite the fact that Paul has been warned on many occasions that once he gets there, he is going to be persecuted. He's going to be bound by the leaders there in Jerusalem. So they get to Jerusalem. At first, there's this great warm welcome by the church. But pretty soon, we see that those prophetic words spoken to Paul come to pass because he's there in Jerusalem. He's in the temple, and he is taken captive by the Jewish people and then handed over to the Romans or actually rescued by the Romans or else he would have been killed there by the mob. And he's put into prison. And he's put in prison right there in Jerusalem. And then he's taken to Caesarea. And for two years he is in Caesarea as the political system grinds so ever so slowly getting him to trial. Not much unlike our political system today. And so he's there for two years, and Luke, his traveling companion, has been with him. And perhaps it's during these two years, and we're just, this is just conjecture, but perhaps it's during these two years that Luke has been um, uh, corresponding with a friend of his called Theophilus. Luke was from Philippi. Perhaps Theophilus was from Philippi as well. And he's been compiling an orderly account of Jesus' life. And one of the ways perhaps he's doing that is while he's with Paul during this period of um, interruption, if you will, which actually ended up being a period of great production for Paul's ministry, Luke has the opportunity to go around and to talk to people who lived and walked and talked and ate with Jesus Christ. He had a chance there in Palestine to meet the apostles and to meet others who had heard the stories of Jesus or had met or had witnessed these different accounts. And so he's asked, putting together his orderly account. And perhaps we can only guess that maybe at one point during that time he went and sat down with Mary, who by that time would have been in her 70s, and sits down with Mary and says, tell me about his childhood. Just tell me about his childhood. And after relating the stories of the birth and the, the great stories of the, of the angel, angelic visits and then the shepherds and all these things, and she doesn't have much more to say. He said, well, well after that, what, what happens? You know, the, we, I know about his earthly ministry when he turns 30, but what about that in-between time? Is, can you share with me something? And Mary begins to think, actually, he had a pretty pretty normal childhood and then something comes to her mind well there was one one thing that happened one event 
that, that I need to share with you. And then she begins to relate the words that Luke records down in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The only story we have of Jesus' childhood from age around 2 till he's 30. This is the only one. So it's a unique passage in Scripture. So let's read it. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. These are the words of God. This is the inspired word of God, friends. This is no different in if Jesus were standing right here speaking to us. He is speaking to us right now in these words. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they could not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would now place your blessing upon the reading of your word and the preaching of the word. Lord, I feel an, an especially strong burden this morning. I should feel it every morning, but I feel it especially strong this morning that I desperately need your help in preaching this passage. It's a very, very important passage. Perhaps it could be somewhat confusing as well. So God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would go before me. Lord, strike the words from my mouth that might be words of error and let the truth go forth. Your word, your pure word, does not come back void. Praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I was thinking this morning of sort of an illustration to sort of connect with the text, because I always try to come up with some sort of illustration, you know, I really don't have to come up with one for this text because, honestly, I think every parent and every child can relate to this story. Now, if you don't have any kids, maybe you can't relate, but remember back to your childhood, perhaps, when there was a moment when you got separated from your parents. Maybe you were in a busy mall or in a, at an amusement park or something, and the, the feeling that overtook you at that moment when you became separated from your parents. And parents, I think we can really relate to this, the feeling of looking down. You've been walking there, there's your child with you, and you, you, they've been walking with you, and you look back down, all of a sudden, it's like they have vanished in an instant. They're not there anymore. Something has caught their attention. They've gone off in this direction, and you find them, and you give them that stern talk. Don't you ever leave my side. I told you not to do that, right? Because 
there's just a tremendous responsibility on us as parents. And then there's that feeling, the overwhelming feeling of just, I mean, helplessness. I mean, if you ever felt parents nod with me, if you, if you can relate to what I'm talking about here, just that uh, there's, there's no feeling that I can really relate to it when you think perhaps you have lost your child. And it's a scary, scary feeling. Now, this is a very unique and very interesting text in Scripture because, as I already mentioned, it's the only passage of Scripture that we have that records anything from Jesus' childhood. We have infancy accounts from when he was up to when he was about two. And then, of course, we have um, his ministry that begins at the age of 30. But beyond this text of Scripture, it's pretty silent. Now, this has led some people to argue that this text is a fabrication. That this was just made up. That this wasn't, didn't really happen. Luke just sort of made this up to fill in the gaps. Now, we already know that Luke is a careful historian. When we studied the book of Acts, we spent that first couple of messages even talking about the accuracy of Luke's account in Acts. And, and Acts is just the second volume of, of this book, the, the, the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is a meticulous historian. So we have no reason to think from the text that this is a fabrication of a story. Luke has carefully documented all that he records. Plus, if you wanted to create a legendary story about Jesus, surely Luke could have come up with something a little bit more interesting than this story. Because, I mean, there were some other stories that began to circulate in the third and fourth centuries, even some as early as the second century, in some apocryphal writings. Writings such as the Gospel of Thomas. Or there's another one called the Infancy, uh, the Arabic Infancy Gospel. And these, these apocryphal writings that, that, that surfaced were non-apostolic. Uh, they were non-authoritative works that surfaced, that emerged in the early church. All of them were w- written at least 200 years after Christ had walked the face of the earth. Not like Luke's gospel, which was written right close to the events when they happened. Now, these non-canonical apocryphal books have some very, very interesting stories about Jesus. Now, I went searching for some of them this week and and honestly, there's tons of them, so I can't give you all of them. But let me just highlight some of the other stories about Jesus that are out there. Okay, there was one story about Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas. It says, while he was in the cradle, he began to talk to Mary in full, just like a, an adult would talk, and share with him what his mission was to be and that he was the Son of God. So he's sitting there in the cradle. He talks to Mary. Mary thinks nothing of it and just goes on with life. Um, there's one story where apparently a lot of these canonical stories, Jesus sort of has a temper and maybe even he's a little bit of a vandal. There's one story where Jesus throws a bunch of linens at some, some dyer's shop. He throws all the linens in a big vat of um, indigo. The store owner comes out. He's upset. His business has been ruined. And so Jesus tells him, well, just tell me what colors you want. And as the, the shop owner says the color, Jesus pulls it out and it magically transforms into the color that it was supposed to be. So some sort of kind of magic trick that Jesus was doing. Uh, there's another one where Joseph was making a throne for the king of Jerusalem. Okay, right? If his son's the king, he's supposed to be making a throne. He's a carpenter after all. He's making a throne. And Jesus walks in and realizes it's too small and says a word and it gets bigger instantly. Okay, so these are some of the apocryphal stories that are out there. There's one, you've probably seen this one, uh, because this one's in the Quran as well. That Jesus made clay animals, clay sparrows, and caused them to come to life and fly off. Matter of fact, a lot of the stories about Jesus' infancy that you find in the Quran are directly from the non-canonical books that were written in the 3rd and 4th centuries. The Gnostic Gospels, as they're called. 
And then there's one where Jesus is um, walking through a town. And another boy runs into him who's, who's running around playing, runs into him. And they knock shoulders. Jesus was exasperated and says, you shall not go further on your way. And the child fell down and died immediately. Okay? So these are some of the stories that are out there that are pretty spectacular. And in light of those stories, Luke's account seems pretty boring, pretty simple, pretty drab, pretty normal and ordinary. But that's precisely what speaks to its authenticity. But also, when you think about what stories Luke wanted to include, this isn't a very safe story to include either. So again, the authenticity of the text is demonstrated by the fact that this story could be easily confused because you look at Jesus' actions, and what do you think? If my child wanders off from me and goes and sits in the temple for three days, I would consider that what? Sin. No, Olivia, you cannot sit, you cannot leave the caravan and go hang out in the temple for ten days. And so when you read the text here, you wonder, did Jesus, is he being disobedient here? in this text. And so it would have been really easy for Luke to say, you know what, let's just keep this story out. But Luke wasn't making the decisions. The Holy Spirit was making the decisions. And the Holy Spirit guided Luke to put this in the text of Scripture. And so we have this very interesting and I would say vitally important passage of Scripture. So let's get into it. Okay, first of all, Luke tells us that they went up to the uh, festival to the feast of the Passover every year. This is what Jesus's parents did. They were pious. We, we get every indication that they were very pious Jews. They, they obeyed the law. And, and so every year they went to the feast of the Passover. Now, as I mentioned when I sang, when I sang, I didn't sing it, when I read Psalm 125, there is the song of the ascents. And these were psalms that they would sing on their way to these different um, feasts. And Jewish men were required to attend three feasts a year, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have traveled in a caravan made up of other people from their town and from neighboring towns. Now, the text indicates that it was Joseph and Mary's custom for them both to go, but wives didn't have to accompany their husbands on these pilgrimages. Neither did children. Now, we do not know if this is the first time Jesus went up or not. It may or may not have been. What we do know is that he was around the, or he was the age of 12. The text makes that clear. And Jewish young men usually began to go on the pilgrimage at this time of their life. When they were 12, even 11, 12, or 13. Why? Because this is a very, very, very important period of time for a Jewish young man. At the age of 13... He would be considered a full-fledged man in Jewish circles. He would thus become a full member of the synagogue. At age 13, he would, be, he would be called a son of the law or a son of the commandment, which is bar, which means son, mitzvah, which means commandment. Now, although the modern-day Jewish bar mitzvah that Jewish boys undergo today would be a good bit different than what Jesus experienced. It's nonetheless the same concept, similar concept, that a young man, by the time he gets to the age of 13, is a full-fledged member of the Jewish um, people, of the, of the men, of the, of the synagogue. Now, the two years leading up, usually one or two years leading up to this Jewish boy's bar mitzvah were huge. It was a time of apprenticeship, when the young man would learn his father's business. It was in a time of intense study of the law and of, of the Torah. 
it was a time when he began to take his responsibilities more and more seriously. Now, why does Luke tell us this story? I believe he's driving home two parallel truths in today's text. And I want us to see and savor these two truths. Okay, so there's two things that I think is vital for us to see. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the first one. It's in your notes there. Number one, it is vital that we comprehend the ordinary childhood and humanity of Jesus. It's vital that we comprehend the ordinary childhood and humanity of Jesus. Luke drives this point home by giving us bookends for this passage of Scripture. Verse 40 and verse 52. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in a very similar verse, verse 52, Luke says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and and in favor with God and man. So we have these two bookend passages that help us to understand what Luke's trying to communicate here. And part of what he's trying to communicate here is that Jesus was human, 100%. He was a normal, ordinary, human, Jewish boy. Now, this admittedly is a bit staggering to us to think about what Luke is saying here. Because he says that Jesus grew. That he increased. This is staggering to us. Jesus grew. God grew. This is absolutely mind-blowing when you really stop and you think about it. It's it's category-shattering. The unchangeable creator of the universe, second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh that needed to grow from eternity past the second person in the Godhead in a covenant of redemption agreed together with his Father and with the Holy Spirit to take on flesh and be subject to the limitations of a human body while not ceasing to be God with all the attributes of deity. That is mind-blowing and category-shattering. I don't think... Unless your mind is a lot bigger than mine, you can fully wrap your mind around these truths. The incarnation is one of those miracles of Scripture that we cannot fully comprehend, but we must fully believe. There's lots of passages, there's lots of truths in Scripture like that. The Trinity, for, for example. But the incarnation, we cannot fully understand it, but we must fully believe it. This text in particular, in particular really makes our minds sort of go into overdrive. Why? I think because it's easy for us to imagine Jesus as a baby, right? Babies are cute. Babies are innocent. Babies are cuddly. Incarnate God is baby. Okay, I'm fine with that. Or as an adult grown man who's wise and has got the full beard now. Strong, wise, bold. All right, God incarnate. But a preteen boy, I know too many preteen boys. That's hard. It's hard to imagine God in flesh as a preteen boy. And so it kind of it makes our mind go a little crazy and it rocks our system a little bit. Now the first thing that stands out to me, however, is the normalcy of his childhood. None of those spectacular stories, those, those didn't happen. Those were fake stories. He had a normal childhood. Verse 40 is sort of the summary statement that covers age 2 to age 12. Okay, and it it covers his physical growth. It says he he became strong. His mental growth, physical, mental, wisdom, spiritual growth. He grew in favor with God. And then verse 52 is a summary statement for his next years. 
when he, from age 12 all the way to age 30. And again, we see him growing physically in stature, mentally, wisdom, spiritually in favor with God, and also growing socially in favor with man. That's how every child grows. That's the steps. You go read the psychology books. They will cover those four things. Okay? Mental, physical, spiritual, social. That's how every child grows. I believe part of the reason we do not have the spectacular stories like those created by the apocryphal writers is that Jesus' childhood was pretty normal and ordinary. And it's the ordinariness of it that should be very important to us. Jesus was not Superboy. I remember one VBS, because I used to be a children's pastor, one VBS curriculum that I did not purchase. And one of the reasons I did not purchase is I didn't like the theme. And the theme was this. It had this picture of Jesus with huge muscles, and he's pulling back his shirt, and it has a big J, but in the Superman shape, you know, the little whatever shape that is, and with a big J there. And I didn't like, that's not what I wanted to communicate to my kids or to the kids at our church. Because the man of steel couldn't be hurt, could he? Nails would have bounced off of his palms. Jesus was not Superboy. Now, do you remember the old Superman movie? Okay, the, the, the one that came out in the early 80s or whatever, Christopher Reeves. And, and the Superman, he gets sent off from Krypton, right? And he's with Kal-El, his father. They put him in this little spiky little spaceship and then shoot him off. And he goes to Earth, comes into the Earth's atmosphere and... And there's this old family or this, this old couple from uh, Kansas that are driving. Boom! They hear this boom and they get out and they see this. And they see this little boy standing there. And then the story goes on. They, they wrap the little boy up in a, in a red cape that they happen to find right there. And he's standing by the car. And, and they realize they got a flat tire. And um, his dad, I don't know what Clark Kent's dad's name was. But anyway, he's sitting here trying to fix tire. But the, the, the um, jack gives way and it, it, it almost falls on his leg, and all of a sudden it stops. And they're like, what happened? And they look over, and there's Superman. And he lifts up the car and lets him finish changing the tire, right? That is not Jesus. And it's important that that not be our thinking about Jesus. It's very important for us to understand that he had to learn. He had to grow. He had to develop physically. His neuropathways had to develop. His muscles had to grow. His bones had to lengthen according to his genetic makeup. You remember, his DNA, half of it was out of nothing, ex nihilo, created by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary. But the other half of his DNA is from Mary. So if Mary came from a short line of people, then Jesus more than likely wasn't going to be the tallest kid on the block. He developed according to the DNA makeup that, the, that God, through the Holy Spirit, the Father, had allowed to happen. Therefore, he may not have been the fastest. He may not have been the tallest. He may not have been the cutest of all the kids in Nazareth. His mind had to connect with his muscles as he learned to put one foot in front of the other in order to walk. And he, like all toddlers, probably fell a few times before he finally got it right. He cried when he was hungry. He cried when he needed to be changed. He cried when he learned the hard way that we don't grab the doggy's tail. He grew and he learned. He had baby teeth that came in and had to be pulled. He probably went through that homely phase in between the stage where, the, where, where little boys' 
adult teeth look too big for their head. Okay, he probably went through that stage as well. His voice cracked as he went through puberty. He had the peach fuzz before he had the full beard. He grew, he changed, he developed like an ordinary Jewish boy. In his divine essence, Jesus is immutable. He never changes. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in the incarnation, he condescended to live in human flesh, setting aside his divine prerogatives, not his divinity, but his divine prerogatives, and entered into creation to be fully human with all its necessities, including physical growth. So when Jesus is walking through Samaria and sits down beside a well because he's tired, he's really tired. And when he asks for some water to drink from the woman who comes to that well, he asks for water because he's really thirsty. And when he eats food with the disciples, he eats because he's really hungry. And when he washed those nasty, dirty feet of his disciples, he really smelt what those feet smelt like. His taste buds really enjoyed the wine at the wedding at Cana. His eyes shed real tears when he came to the place where one of his good friends had died. He experienced real pain when real thorns ripped through real flesh on his brow. And when spikes ran through his palms, when his lungs filled up with blood and water in the final hours on the cross, he lived and experienced real humanity. He was not Clark Kent. And he grew mentally, intellectually. He had to learn to communicate non-verbally and then verbally. He probably said some words in some funny ways, causing his parents to go on and on about how cute he was when he said this or that. He learned to say mama and papa. He did not know his numbers and his colors until he learned them from his mother and his father. He learned how to interact socially. He learned the rules for the games that the Jewish boys played in the neighborhood. He developed common sense and wisdom. He observed nature like the beautiful way God had dressed the flowers in the field. Like how some seeds grew but other seeds didn't grow because there were weeds over here and there weren't weeds over here. He took all these things in. In his divine essence, he is omniscient. He knows all for he is the creator of all things and by his power he holds all things together. But in the incarnation, he condescended to live in human flesh, setting aside his divine prerogatives, not his divinity, but his divine prerogatives, and entered into creation to be fully human with all the learning that humans must experience. On the human level, he knew all he needed to know to accomplish his mission. John Calvin put it this way, There would be no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of some things in respect to his perceptions as a man. So when Jesus says in Mark 13 and also in Matthew 24 that he doesn't know the hour of his return, he doesn't know the hour of his return. So when Jesus is, is trying to get to uh, J- Jairus' house or Jairus' house to, to heal his daughter, and he's walking through a crowd and he feels healing power go out of him, and he turns around and he says, Who touched me? He really means. Who touched me? Now, the father could have revealed it to him on the spot if he wanted to, but, and he has such a connection with the father. But for whatever reason, at that moment, he needed to know who 
touched me. Somebody here touched me. And he really had to learn, ascertain things mentally and intellectually. Spiritually. He had to grow spiritually. He had to learn the Word of God. Yes, the incarnate Word of God had to learn the Word of God. He studied to learn the Torah. He studied the words of Moses. He studied the writings of the prophets. He sang the Psalms. He would have been singing these Psalms, worshiping the Lord as he went to Jerusalem. He would have asked questions. He would have sought answers. He would have taken in the teachings about the law that were being given to him by his father, and by his mother, and by the synagogue leaders. And when he was in Jerusalem, by the priests and by the teachers. He would have examined the scriptures himself to see if these teachings were true. He, like any Jewish young man, would have had to work hard to memorize scripture. His parents would have drilled it, drilled him on it. Jesus, have you done your memory? Okay, Jesus, give me Deuteronomy. Okay, we give our, we, we want one verse from our kids. By Jesus' age, he would have had huge chunks, probably the first five books of the Old Testament, totally memorized by this point. He would have taken to heart more than anyone else what the psalmist said when he said, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Jesus would have done that perfectly. Unlike us. He would have had to hear, to read, to learn, and to put his hope in God's word. And that's what he's doing in the temple here. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In typical Jewish educational fashion, he would have sat down, he would have listened, and then he would have asked questions. And then the, the rabbis would have then given him an answer, and then they would have asked him questions to see if he understood the answer. And that's what's going on in this passage of Scripture here. He's comprehending, mentally taking in these things, and spiritually grasping them. This was all a demonstration of his humanity. And he grew socially. I can imagine him walking around in his social context observing shepherds. And how shepherds treated sheep. Perhaps one day there was a shepherd who left his whole flock in the field. And he didn't know what Jesus was wondering. Where did the shepherd go? He's out because he's lost one of them. There's a lost sheep out there and the shepherd has gone to look for him. Perhaps one day he was uh, uh, at, a, at a feast. And the owner, the owner of, the, of, the, of, the, of the banquet hall or wherever he's at begins to, to recount how he had invited other people to the feast. But they wouldn't come because they were too busy doing other things. He grew socially. He took these things in. Perhaps he, he observed a vineyard owner and how the vineyard owner tended to the vines. And he watched and he learned and just observed all these things. He grew socially. It was part of his humanity. Why is this so important? Because. If Jesus is Superman, then he can't be your Savior. If Jesus was Superman, he's not your Savior. He had to be like we were, but without sin. He had to identify fully with us, but without sin. Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. If Jesus isn't like us, there's no atonement. There's no forgiveness of sins if he's Superman. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
The gospel is not about ideas and theories. It exists in the realm of biology and physics. Real flesh to redeem real men. Jesus is actually the embodiment of true humanity. As it was truly designed to be. Body, soul, mind, spirit. Yet without the bondage of sin. With no propensity to sin. With no stain whatsoever from sin. Jesus is the perfect man. He's not the superman. There's a difference. He's the perfect man. We must grasp his humanity. If we have a superboy picture of Jesus, then we are dangerously close to the first heresy that the church faced. And I see by some of the... I, can, I look out, I take in looks on people's faces as I'm sharing those things about Jesus' humanity. I see you guys out there going, really? Really? Yes. He grew like every other human boy had to grow. You see, the early church struggled not with his divinity. The early church struggled with his humanity. The first heresies that arose in the church, docetism, is a denial of the humanity of Jesus. Because the Gnostics began to come up during that time, during the, during the latter part of, of the New Testament writings, you'll see some, some hints that Gnosticism was on the rise. But the Gnostics believed that anything matter was evil. Therefore, flesh was evil. Therefore, there's no way God could have actually been true human flesh. It's impossible. And so they came up with fantastical stories about his childhood, didn't they? And they denied his humanity. Today, it's sort of the opposite of that. Oh, I believe Jesus was a great man. He was a philosopher or whatever else. And we deny, many, in the, many today in our culture deny his divinity. But it was flipped opposite during Jesus, during this time, during um, Luke's day. We must grasp his full humanity. I'm afraid, I'm afraid there's many of us in the church that are dangerously close to docetism. Because we don't like to think of Jesus as being a boy and having to go through all those things. I think there's many in the church who are actually, without realizing it, docetists. We don't realize or we don't comprehend that Jesus actually went through all that he went through. He was actually human. And the early church recognized this as a horrible heresy. Why is it heresy? Because in order to save fallen men, Jesus must be fully man. From birth to death and everything in between, even as a homely 12-year-old prepubescent boy, he had to be all of those things in order to save men. And I believe the reason we don't run to the cross and we don't run to Christ and trust in the riches of his grace for every single little mundane issue in our lives is because we're too close to embracing a false Superman Jesus than we are the true Jesus. Therefore, when we struggle to memorize, we say, well, I've got ADD and I can't memorize very well. Instead of saying, Jesus, I know you had to memorize Scripture the exact same way I had to memorize Scripture. So I beg you for your grace and mercy to help me memorize Scripture better. As we deal in our workplace with doing, being, doing a good job with our work, you know, Jesus actually worked. He did things with his hands. He was a carpenter's son. He had to make things. Uh, there's one of the, one of the um, apocryphal writings has that over Jesus' workplace, it said, we make our yokes easy, all right? 
So I don't know if that was what it said over Jesus' uh, workplace or not. That's kind of a funny story from the apocryphal writings. But he did his work well. He had to work hard. He had to produce good things. So as you're sitting there and you're struggling with your workplace, and I just can't stand this job. I can't stand being here. Don't find your inner strength. Find his strength because he had to go through the same things you went through for up until he was 30. He was doing a job that wasn't his true job. He had to go through the same things that we went through, yet without sin. So as you're struggling with pain and emotional scars and all the junk that comes with humanity, run to the cross. Jesus isn't your fire insurance. He is your sustainer for every little mundane part of your life. Every bit of it. So that it's vital that we comprehend the ordinary childhood and humanity of Jesus. For without it, without Christ's full humanity, there can be no atonement. But equally, equally, we must also see that without Christ's full divinity, there likewise can be no atonement. So at the very same time, Luke also wants us to see something else. He wants us to see something extraordinary. So the next point in your notes there is it's vital that we also comprehend the extraordinary nature and mission of Jesus. Okay, go ahead and bring it up for me back there, guys. It's vital that we comprehend the extraordinary nature and mission of Jesus. So let's look at the rest of the story to see how Luke drives this home. Now, let's get into the story here a little bit. The, the feast ends after seven days. The caravan heads home. Now, the caravans would have normally consisted of the ladies in one group, the men in another group, heading home to Nazareth and the surrounding areas. Now, the children were usually with the ladies, with the women. But in this case, perhaps Joseph, since Jesus is sort of that in-between age, Joseph thought Jesus was with the women, and Mary thought Jesus was with the men. After all, he's that 12 years old, he's entering into his apprenticeship now. Well, regardless of whoever thought whatever, they can't find him. Okay, it was a different time than ours today. You may think that Joseph and Mary were totally irresponsible here. And that's when I first read I think, what horrible parents. Give them a break. It was a different day. It was much more of a communal environment. Friends and relatives helped you with your children. Okay? Uh, today, we put up fences and we don't want our kids to get outside the fence. As we live in a very different culture. Even, even from a culture, our culture 60, or even 30 years ago. I'm not 60. Or even 30 years ago. Because I remember I used to be allowed to just go run around the neighborhood and ride my bike wherever. And I don't let my kids do that now. Things have changed a lot. And so cultures change. So don't get mad at Joseph and Mary here. Okay? Different parenting than ours. So after a day into the trip, they realize he's not there. Now you can imagine that conversation. You've perhaps had that conversation. I thought he was with you. No. I said he was going to stay with you. No, you didn't. I thought he would. No. I thought... Are you telling me you've lost the Messiah? And so they're a day out. They turn around, head back, another day journey to get there. And then they spend a day looking for him. That's where we get the three days that are mentioned. And Mary comes up to him, and I imagine in a very direct tone, says, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But Jesus doesn't sheepishly say, Sorry, Mom. 
Instead, he asks her two very penetrating questions. And these two questions will expose three things. Number one, they expose the fact that Mary and Joseph have perhaps forgotten who Jesus is and what he's called to do. Number two, they will show that Jesus' actions were not sin. Instead, they were exactly what was to be expected from a boy who was about to become a son of the commandment and enter into his father's work. And finally, number three, they show that Jesus was already fully self-aware of who he was and what his purpose was. So he asked them these questions, verse 49. This is sort of the dramatic peak of the story. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Mary, she says that we've been searching for you. And Jesus says, well, well, why were you looking for me? Mary says, your father and I. And Jesus says, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' father was not looking for him. Joseph was. And Jesus wasn't lost. He was right in his home. Mary and Joseph were the ones who had lost track of Jesus. They had lost track of who he was and what he was called to do. It's almost, you can almost imagine um, Jesus thinking or saying, Mom, you you should have known where I would be because you should know who I am. Angels told you, Mom. Angels told you and they told Joseph. Angels told shepherds, Mom. They told the shepherds who I was. Don't you remember, Mom? Kings came, Mom. Don't you remember? The kings came and they worshipped me. You're not allowed to worship anything other than God, Mom. Do you remember? You told me these stories, Mom. Don't you remember? Perhaps the normalcy of Jesus' humanity had caused those things to fade in Mary and Joseph's memory. I don't know. Jesus was not sinning, staying behind. He was simply right where he was supposed to be. Perhaps even to further emphasize the fact that Jesus was not sinning, just in case Luke's worried that some of us might misunderstand this passage of Scripture, he gives us verse 51, which says this, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus kept the fifth commandment better than any child in history. He kept all the law. He was born under the law. He kept it for us, including commandment number five and all the others. He was perfectly obedient to his parents. His actions were not sin. Now they would be for us. Our motives for staying behind would not have been pure. Jesus' loyalty to his heavenly father, his true father, was superior to his loyalty to his parents. But our loyalty to God is not pure like Christ's. Is. So a response like Jesus would have given, if, if, if my child would have given me a response like Jesus gave his mom, or if you'd have given that response to your parents, you would have rightly heard, don't you talk to me like that. But Mary had no ground to say those words. Instead, Luke tells us that she simply treasured these things up in her heart. She pondered them. She meditated upon them. No scolding, for she knew that yes, This child was indeed the Son of God. And even though in verse 50 it tells us that she nor Joseph fully understood these things, she knew that what Jesus was telling her was right. And finally, the third point here on this is that what Jesus was telling them by asking these questions was he was telling them that he was fully self-aware of who he was and what his mission was. 
This was indeed his time of bar mitzvah. As a good son, at the age of 12, he was entering into an apprenticeship. He was with his father. He was in his father's house. He was absorbing his father's truth. He was fellowshipping and communing with his true father. He was learning to imitate and model his father. He was learning his father's business, his father's mission. He was taking it all in. Perhaps your translation even says, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? If you have a new King James, it probably says something along those lines. Or if you have the old King James, it says my father's business. Okay, instead of saying in my father's house. The text in the Greek literally reads this. I must be in the things of my father. I must be in the things of my father. Therefore, it can be translated either way. And regardless of how it's translated, the meaning remains the same. That Jesus was self-aware of who he was. That he was the son of the living God. Where he was, that he was in his father's place of business. And what was his father's business? What was the purpose? His father was about the business of redemption. And Jesus was to obey God perfectly on behalf of his people and to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. He was to be the spotless Passover lamb. This whole Passover week had to be exhilarating for Jesus. As he's hearing the stories of the Exodus, perhaps he's becoming self-aware that, hey, I'm the new Moses. I'm going to bring my people out of a much greater bondage than this. As he sees the Passover lamb being slaughtered, he becomes self-aware that, yes, I am the lamb of God who must be slaughtered. As that blood is, 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 is shed and, 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 and placed over the doorpost, and he understands that his blood will have to be put on the, the doorposts of the hearts of his people in order for them to be with God, in order for that death to pass over. This was his father's business. He was learning his father's business. His father's business would sustain him for all of his life. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. His father's business was the business of redeeming men. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. His father's business was his highest joy. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And his father's business of redeeming men was fully completed in the life of Jesus Christ. John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He finished the work. It's completed. It's done. He did his father's business. Every single bit of it. Only the unique God-man could do this. 100% man to die for men. 100% God to provide a perfect sacrifice for sin before a perfect holy God. Man in order to stand in the place of men. God in order to live in perfect union and obedience to the Father and shed perfect blood. The divine Son, the second person in the Trinity substituting himself for men from babe to the grave he substituted himself for men second corinthians 5:21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god so as we finish this morning if you're here this morning and you have never 
bowed your knee to the true king of the universe, then I beg you, come. Come to the only one who can provide a sufficient sacrifice for your sin. Come. Confess his name, a name above all names. Jesus reversed the curse. The essence of sin is this, my friends. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, putting himself in the place that only God deserves to be, just like the first Adam did, and just like we all do under Adam. But the essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for man, sacrificially putting himself where only man deserves to be, namely under the full wrath of a holy God. And this is what the second Adam, Jesus, did. And all who are united to the second Adam are made right with God on the merit of Christ who lived a sinless life from birth to death on our behalf. That's the gospel. Believe it. Receive it this morning if you never have before. If you have some faulty view of Superboy, Jesus, I beg you to repent of it. Docetism, heresy. And come and confess it before Jesus and beg him to do a new work in your heart where he has absolute lordship over even the mundane things of your life. Bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who Jesus is. That he came to this nasty, filthy earth that we have messed up because of our sin. And he is making all things new. But he begins with one heart at a time. Giving new life. As we confess our sin and turn to Christ. Plead for him to be the Lord of our life. We are given New life because we have new hearts. Hearts made new by the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray, Lord, that there be here hard, stony, cold hearts here today. That your word would penetrate those hard hearts. That they would understand that this Jesus, fully man, came to provide a, a sacrifice, a payment, propitiation for the sins of his people. But he's also fully God. So his, sin, his blood that was shed for sins was perfect blood. Therefore the grave couldn't hold him. He's alive. Oh Lord, let us see and savor these great things about Jesus. Lord, my prayer, Heavenly Father, is if there be anybody here that needs to talk about the gospel, they feel free to come up here and do it. Lord, I pray that this time of response would be a time of response for all of us to bring our tithes, our offerings, our prayer requests, pray where we're at. Let your spirit, Lord, do whatever you want in our hearts. We submit to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.